Thanks for downloading show 110 of the C-Suite podcast, the sixth in our special series of episodes that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and as regular listeners will know, um, I co-host these particular episodes with Taito's founder, Brendan Craigie. And so joining us both online from Hamburg is Dr. Tim Sievers, a CEO and founder of Deposit Solutions, an open banking platform that, as reported in the Financial Times, reached unicorn status in September 2019 after securing a $55 million investment for a 4.9% stake from Deutsche Bank. So welcome to the show, Tim. Great to have you as part of this series. And actually, you're our first unicorn leader to join us from Germany. Uh, Do you want to start by giving us a quick overview of the business. Yes, of course. Thanks. Okay, so with Deposit Solutions, we uh, do open banking for deposits, right? So deposits obviously are um, simple savings products. Um, It's about overnight accounts, fixed-term deposits, and notice accounts. And for savers, deposits are an important product category for the financial services needs. That's just where you put your money, the excess cash that you want to save. And for banks, This is a really important funding uh, source. 40% of European banks' balance sheets are funded in deposits. And what we bring to this product category is the ability for a a customer to use products of different providers under his existing home bank relationship, or we call that the point of sale, the, the interface to the customer. Because the point of sale can implement our platform into its own offering and then give their own customers access to the, all these third-party provider products. And on the other hand, the product providers, they gain access through our platform to a huge additional addressable market for, for their funding. So it really is a win-win. And it's, it's also called open architecture. It's something that's quite well known from other product categories. And we really bring this into the product category of savings. Tim, I mentioned at the top of the show that Deposit Solutions um, achieved unicorn status towards the end of 2019. Did, did that milestone change the perception of your company at all? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, maybe so. I think in many ways it didn't change much. I guess uh, it brought us maybe a little uh, more attention, and it, it was maybe sort of comparable to when Peter Thiel invested. I was also surprised how that. Um, gave us some more credibility with um, parties that didn't know us before. And in our industry, so obviously as a fintech and especially as a B2B focused fintech like us, we're selling to banks. Banks are very conservative organizations. Um, Typically, they are much larger than us. They're always worried about uh, whether they can trust a partner, whether the partner is going to be around for long enough and all these things. So I think on that dimension, uh, it may have helped us a little bit. And, and how do you build a, a company culture in, in such a you know, fast-moving and high-growth environment? Um, right, yeah. I mean, obviously, so this is a challenge, right, because we are fast-growing, and that means many people who work f- uh, with us today haven't been with a company for very long. And uh, also, it's, a, it's an environment that is changing quite fast, quite fast-paced and demanding on, on the team also. And I think first thing is you've got to make sure that you find the right people who, who are looking for this, who, who, are, who are looking for what we are, eager to take responsibility. So that, that's sort of the, the sort of team building aspect of it. But then when everyone's there, I think you've also got to make sure to unite them behind a common goal. That's really a communication challenge. Uh, you've got to make sure everyone understands the vision so they can take 
the right decisions decentrally, even though they may not have been with the company for, for such a long time. Right? And then also finally, what I've noticed is that it's, it's not only important to say what behavior is wanted, it is also important to have a very clear code of conduct, like what isn't acceptable. And I think this is also something that one has to kind of find a consensus and build a consensus around. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, as you say, it's, it's a challenge every day, but mm. it's also exciting. That's fantastic. Um, one, one of the um, things that we've seen with quite a few of the unicorn CEOs that we've we've spoken to, Tim, is that they've usually been involved in other kind of uh, uh, companies before in sort of creating and building other companies. And I believe you founded and sold a company that created internet solutions for mid-sized companies. What sort of um, did you take away from that experience? And were there any mistakes you made along the way that you kind of now learning from um, with deposit solutions yeah i mean uh, i've got to say this was ages ago so this was my early 20s um, i had just finished university and in, in the sort of late 90s um around the turn of the century um with dot-com bubble going on i first joined a, the startup of a friend of mine building up the german subsidiary of his startup and then i founded my own company for the first time and and um, did that with a friend and I mean, many things were different then. It was a different industry. I was, as I said, much, much younger. But um, I guess the two things that um, I took away from this was to focus on team and product. And I think that's, that, that's what I've done this time around also. And I think that's important when you start up something new. Yeah, no, so exciting building teams and kind of um, navigating all of that. And you kind of opened up, uh, Tim, talking about obviously you're part of this big transformation that's going on in financial services around open banking. To anyone that's kind of maybe new to that 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 subject area and, and what's going on, what what is open banking and, and, and why do we need it? Right. I think this is um, this is really important also because there is sort of some discussion and, cl- and clarity sometimes around what exactly open banking is. And to me, open banking is about putting the customer at the center of everything. So the customer needs at the center of everything. It's not about pushing products uh, onto a customer base um, of your own balance sheet. It's about really understanding what your customer wants and needs and um, adapting around that. And I think this, of course, includes the whole PSD2 world, which is especially in the UK, I think, the focus of discussion a lot. And that's rather recent. But it also... Uh, means uh, or contains the whole uh, world of open architecture where we play in, which is actually a little older. In some product categories, this is already 20 or 30 years old. Um, It's the principle of making available on top of your own products, also third-party products to your own customer base. And the two together, PSD2 and open architecture, are really, I think, very powerful in transforming the industry to the benefit of the customer, and they also create huge opportunities for those industry players that embrace it, and, and especially the incumbents, I think. Of course, also there are a lot of challenges, like new players in the industry, but especially for the incumbents, I believe open banking is a huge opportunity. And I mean, maybe just kind of as a follow-up to that, could you obviously have your consumer-facing brands, and then, then you obviously have a, like a, a more of a B2B focus. What's the kind of thinking behind having those kind of two different dimensions to your business? Yeah, that's right. I mean, our vision is to build an infrastructure uh, for the deposits product category. And um, that is a B2B focused vision. And that's how I set up, uh, set out as well, like 10 years ago when I started the company. Um, we spent about three, four years building the platform. And then when I went to 
presented to the first partners and trying to win them to participate, um, the, the distribution partners told me, look, come back when you've got products in the shelf. And the product providers told me, come back when you have distribution, right? So there was a giant uh, chicken and egg problem to solve. And at that time, we started our own B2C point of sale, our, um, our own client, direct client-facing uh, business. It's, it runs under the um, brand of Zinspilot in Germany and Savedo uh, um, in our international markets. And um, with that, we distribute the products listed on our platform directly to savers. And this was really useful because it proved to other market participants you know, that this works, so it's feasible, the regulator is fine with it, and, and customers want it. But it also meant that for product providers, I could say, look, here's the vision. We'll have lots of distribution for you. But regardless of what happens, I have this channel here, which works already, and I can get you deposits tomorrow. So with that, we were able to build the product panel. And with that, we were able to win more point of sale partners. We have more than 100 today and, and product providers from, from more than 20 European countries. Um, but Tinspilot was, so the B2C platform was really helping us overcome the chicken neck problem. It's um, putting it like that shows that we are all about B2B, but it kind of understates, I think, the relevance of Tinspilot, the B2C business a little bit too, because it, I think even standalone, this has definitely been one of the most um, successful European B2C fintechs. That's brilliant, yeah. Um, and and is, is doing quite well today. I can see how that's very compelling being able to kind of have those be able to kind of show show it in action as well as kind of yeah yeah it also means that we can learn from the user experience and you know sort of optimize our product with direct insights and so it has many sort of secondary advantages yeah. but what i just said about the chicken and egg problem that's how, how it all started and you obviously get to expose to kind of the the fintech ecosystem on a global level but you know around the world where where are you most excited at the, at the moment in terms of where are you seeing the greatest innovation coming out of, you know, which kind of fintech hubs, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really tough one. I think um, one thing that is interesting, I mean, there's lots of exciting stuff going on, right? Uh, around sort of new regulation like PSC2, uh, around uh, payments and around uh, loans and in the savings space and, you know, all these sort of new products and formats also that are tested on customers. So there's lots of exciting stuff. What I find interesting is that it's, this is one area where, you know, it's, it's not like the innovation is happening in the US and then the rest of the world follows. There is exciting stuff being invented in Europe um, as well as in the States. And, and in fact, there are quite a few European startups which are starting up businesses in the US now. We are one of them as much as the other way around, right? So I think this is exciting. But also beyond Europe and the US, I think it's quite interesting also to see how, for instance, in Africa, um, they, are, they are sort of leapfrogging directly to mobile applications and and sort of how behave, customers haven't learned the desktop behavior so much, so they are more open um, to try new formats on the mobile. And there's sort of exciting stuff happening there as well. So I wouldn't be able to pick one winner, I guess. Just picking up on uh, what you just said there about launching into the US, how, how are those plans going? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's going well, so it's really far advanced as well, actually. We, I think with, uh, this is sort of one of the projects that have, has been delayed by, by the corona crisis. We are uh, looking to launch as soon as uh, the... Uh, so, sort of, I mean, within this year, obviously, depending a little bit on how the, the uh, situation in the U.S. evolves, it's something that we've been preparing for two years already. Um, this, this has been a um, big challenge for us as a company. We want to make sure that, of course, we want to use our core strengths. At the same time, product market fit in Europe doesn't translate one-to-one -one into product market fit in the U.S. So we, we, 
went to great lengths to actually make sure to adapt the product to the local requirements, uh, not just in terms of regulation and uh, sort of the, the contractual frameworks, and but also in terms of the competitive landscape and, and customer needs. Um, so we went, we, we actually invested quite a bit of time and have a team in New York, which is all, they're all in home office, of course, too now, and uh, we're currently preparing our market launch and sort of on the last mile to that. It's really exciting. Um, so you, as we, I think we, if we're correct, you've got, you're up to about 300 employees now and, you know, sticking with this kind of theme around communications, I think as, as a leader, you always have to kind of balance the need to communicate with individuals, but then also need to communicate with the team and kind of get your message across to, you know, to the entire company. How do you, as a leader, how do you navigate that? What's your kind of approach? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's obviously, Corona changed that a little bit too, right? But I think generally I've found that it's good to be, so we've experimented with this and I find that sitting with the team helps just because there's sort of informal communication that is happening all the time and sort of I, I also tried for some time like have been being in a separate office just by myself which obviously when you're on the phone so much also has its advantages but I think the uh, other model so we went back to that and, and I think that helps because there's lots of informal communication but then also what we found over the years is um, especially coming back to what I said earlier about um, uniting a team be behind uh, one common goal and vision, you have to have some sort of organized, uh, centralized formats of communication on top of the informal things that are going on. And obviously lots of that is happening, uh, trickling down the sort of line management structures, like every leader with their teams, and then you kind of speak to the team leaders and, and so on. But also the, um, I think, direct formats we have experimented with. And I mean, it's not always, uh, easy to make it like at the same time, um, you know, short enough for everyone to keep attention and, and sort of long enough to be able to provide sufficient substance. But we found this has become quite an effective format for us too. So I try to communicate directly to all, as well as to um, the individual leaders or, or sort of individual people. Um, and, and my colleagues in the management uh, try to do that too. We also have now, I think what we've seen now in the Corona uh, time, like where, where remote work and you know, people are at home, uh, what we've seen is that people tend to get on video calls uh, team, like with the whole team several times a day. Um, and what we've also seen is that we have, or we've, we've found it's quite useful to provide also higher, higher frequency of internal communication formats, like a newsletter, you know, sort of to still get across that you're part of, you know, you're a part, you're part of one team, one community, even though everyone's sitting at home. Has this period challenged you as a, as a leader of the business? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I think, this has been really quite challenging, I think, yeah. especially on the communication side, uh, but also in other respects. Um, while we are, I think, you know, lucky in many regards compared to other industries, uh, this has still been hugely challenging for our clients and for us and with delays and projects and um, and teams teams uh, in different places and you know all these things. So yes, this has been definitely a challenging time. Yeah, I mean we're actually recording this just as lockdown is starting to be eased. But when we were talking earlier, before before we actually started the podcast, um, you were saying there's still only a few people in the office, and I think you said today it was around 15 or so. How much of an impact has the COVID-19 crisis had on your business as a whole? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, this has had an impact on everyone, I guess, and, and it's, it's certainly had a big 
impact on us. Uh, we are in our fourth month of home office and remote work. We started really early, like the beginning of March. Fortunately, the team has done well so far, but it's affected us. I mean, it's affected how we work for sure. It's also affected our business. I mean, we're in, in that sense, we're in a fortunate position because we're not in travel or like in the sort of restaurants uh, business or whatever. I mean, some of the industries have been hit much harder. But um, also for us, it means that quite a few projects that we had planned to implement with partners in the second quarter had been delayed or even cancelled because the partners were busy with business continuity management and, and crisis management. So it means that we are this year we are growing slower than we had planned to grow. We will still grow. So I think we're still, I mean, we shouldn't complain too much. Um, uh, the demand for our services hasn't like broken down or anything, but um, it's definitely been a tough time for us. Just thinking like a bit more broadly around the economy and the environment we're in at the moment, it always kind of slightly depresses me when I look at what interest rates I can get on my savings. And, you know, like it's kind of, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of like thinking, why do, why do I bother um, when you literally can't get a return? And, and I'm just wondering, uh, we see interest rates still seem, still seem to be going down. You know, you've got, I think, negative interest rates, I think, you know, the European Central Bank. How is this a viable business for, for banks at the moment to kind of be managing people's money for savings? Yeah, it's a challenging time for everyone, for, for savers and for banks, I guess, right? As I said earlier, for banks, deposits are really important as a funding source. And this is like the recent turmoils in, in the sort of capital markets and the variations in the wholesale market uh, funding costs for banks have brought home the importance of retail deposit funding because that is, it's stable, it's granular, it doesn't run away in panic like when something like a crisis hits. So it's an important funding source for banks regardless of the interest rate level and having access to it and a diversified uh, pool of retail clients to tap into for your funding is of strategic importance and risk management importance regardless of the cost but also for the savers it's a hard, it's it increases the pressure right so when your home bank is giving you zero or threatening to give you a negative rate that's i mean the other way to look at it like one way to look at it is like okay why why should I even bother? The other way to look at it is like, okay, where can I sort of make sure I'm not losing money? So we feel that demand yes. from savers has has not at all been going down with this uh, decrease in rates over the past years. If anything, uh, the problem of the saver has become bigger. And and also the question is, what else to do, right? What else do you do? If you don't put it in the bank, the, in the bank, at least it's deposit insured. You can be pretty sure, I mean, you, you, you will get back your money. You might not earn a large, huge interest, but you will get back your money. Uh, when you put it into, into stock markets, of course, in the long term, that's likely going to be um, giving you a good return. But then you have to have good nerves to sort of take those swings of 30% down and 50% up. And, and you know, what, what we're yes. seeing like these past months. And also depends on what stage in your life you're in. I mean, if you're saving, that's fine. If you're in retirement, that's not that's not great i mean the sort of that sort of you don't have, maybe you have the sort of 30 years until you want to get access to your money so i think the, yeah. you, you don't want to put them the cash under your um under your sofa right oh yeah so i yeah. think that's we see that there is a huge demand from banks and from savers and it's pretty robust and the market is huge in in europe alone it's more than ten thousand billion euros so that's a pretty exciting wow. market um and it seems and it's, it seems very robust to any changes in the interest rate and do you think, like, just in terms of the threat of recession, or, you know, which we obviously we've seen recession called in different, you know, different economies already, 
do you think that like defaults from consumers and businesses on loans, how will that kind of feed through to the sector? So, so again, I think looking at both um, groups we're working with, the savers and the banks. So for banks, when they have defaults and we default rates are increasing, it means that their um, the, the the swaps uh, the, the the spreads are going to widen. So it means that uh, funding is becoming more expensive for them uh, when they try to get it in um, in sort of wholesale markets or capital markets. Um, this also means that, relatively speaking, deposit funding is going to be more attractive and more important, especially as maybe some banks worry about rating decreases or things like that. In the um, deposit market, everything's deposit insured, at least up to a cap of 100,000 euros, which is sort of well, the average is at 40,000 euros per saver. So savers don't need to worry about counterparty risks. So this is something, this is a, a really important funding source that doesn't dry up in a crisis. So I think from the bank's perspective, if anything, a um, recession is going to make deposits more important and more attractive. Um, from the saver side, of course, people in a recession might have less to save, but then also typically stock markets aren't doing so great. So, um, yeah, we, this all comes back to deposits just being a very robust market, partly because it's so huge and partly because it's the default of what you do with your money. Tim, I want to bring this conversation back to um, communications. It's a key part of, of what we've been speaking to all our unicorn leaders um, in, you know, in each of these episodes. And, um, and what, what we look at, is, is, as we talked about earlier, is that journey to becoming a, a unicorn. As a tech startup where you're based in Europe rather than Silicon Valley, what, what's been your approach to raising awareness and also differentiating yourself in such a noisy and crowded area? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So I have to say, like in the first couple of years, I didn't spend much time on communications at all. Uh, I think we, we were very product focused um, and sort of focused on building the team. And I think it's probably something that with hindsight, we maybe could have started to do a little earlier. So we weren't at all happening in the whole sort of founder press and in this, you know, sort of pretty much uh, focused on just getting the right product out and, and obviously speaking to, to our clients, getting the product market fit. And it, this has led to, for the first couple of years, people were typically surprised, uh, firstly, that, you know, or asking, wondering who we are, and then secondly, surprised that we, are, we were actually um, perceived to be smaller than we were most of the time. I think uh, what we have done over the years then um, is that we have increased our our attention to communications, firstly by contributing to the to the debate around topics that are relevant for us. So uh, we've got a sort of thought leadership program where we sort of commission research around our area of expertise, around uh, deposits and bank funding and all these things. Um, we participate in industry conferences and have a, a an event series where we invite. Uh, industry players and sort of present on different topics both sort of our internal know-how but also have external speakers so we've actually today we're doing much more than than in the past and um, uh, but I think in the early years we've been rather um, inward oriented I think we're still today we're still not the loudest in the room but you don't have to always be I mean after all we are a, we are pretty B2B focused and we've got to sort of convince with our products. And how do you view your role as an external spokesperson and representative of the business? And, you know, what what have you learned along the way? Yeah, this comes back a little to what I said earlier. I think you shouldn't be too loud too early. 
uh, I think, I mean, we actually, we have been criticized sometimes for being, uh, for, for not happening <laughs> um, externally, sort of, or being hard to, uh, you know, sort of not getting enough attention. But I think it's also good to not be too loud too early because it helps build credibility. And then if your product is too far behind the narrative, that usually catches up with you also uh, in sales. So that's not good either. I think what we have, what we have been trying to do is contribute uh, to the, as I said, to the industry debate with our sort of research pieces. We have also uh, tried to contribute to the debate in, in sort of by part participating in, in sort of different committees. Um, for instance, in a committee of the um, German finance ministry on different sort of FinTech related questions together with industry leaders from the sort of established banks and, and um, and sort of similar formats, and we're also participating in a sort of workshop series of um, the German Banking Association, and uh, you know, in the countries we are in, we sometimes also sort of try to try to get involved with uh, either sponsoring uh, industry events or um, participating in roundtables and things like that. So I think there is there is this sort of participation, which I think is important for us, uh, also in terms of shaping our like the space we are active in. I mean, we have many challenges, like the, for instance, the European single market, which is more a, I mean, which just isn't, sounds great, but in practice is just so far from, from where we need to be that I think there's a lot of work required by everyone active in this industry and it, it's affecting us fintechs in particular, and especially the ones that have, are looking for international markets. And um, yeah, I mean, this is sort of, I guess, uh, this has sort of been our focus. And, and what about you personally? Have you, have you always been a, a natural communicator or, or have you you know had to work on it and formulate a plan because quite often when someone has an idea and launches a business they want to be behind the scenes and getting it building it and not necessarily be at the front you know end of that of that business has it been a natural thing for you to be a, a communicator for the business um yeah i don't know i mean it's been a development for me too I, when we started off uh, i wasn't used to uh, sort of giving speeches or presenting to large audiences so this is something you sort of pick up with practice along the way I guess and and uh, I think that's sort of on the that, that's sort of on the um, I guess comes comes sort of with the with the job on the I guess on the interpersonal side also I, I don't know whether I mentioned this but we we are quite an international team we have I think the 300 people are 44 from 44 nationalities so lots of when co collaborating there are these sort of cultural aspects around communication too and I'm northern German so I tend to be pretty direct uh, right, so I think this has also been a journey for me to sort of try and adapt and um, you know get make my points, but maybe uh, also work a little bit on the on the style to be more compatible for for people from other kind of cultural backgrounds. Who who are the least direct? Do you think least direct? Oh, that's a, that's a hard one. I think um, there are there are uh, sort of I, I wouldn't say least direct, but there are sort of more elegant ways of saying no, for instance, in India than there are in Northern Germany. <laughs> right, right, okay. That's interesting. Excellent. That's a, that is a very, very nicely put. Actually, sorry, Brenda, just in terms of with your communication across the business then, what do you, do you use English across the business as a, as a consistent language or are you, is it yeah. German? Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, so about three years after I started the company, we, we realized that the, uh, it was hard to find the people we need in the local labor market. So we switched the company language to English and then just started hiring internationally. Interesting. And, and thinking about your career so far, um, Tim, what, what has been your biggest communications challenge that you faced? 
I think the Corona crisis has been the biggest challenge uh, in many dimensions, but also uh, in communications. Um, it's been difficult because you have to be straight and honest with with the team and and I guess um, the people you're talking to. And so you know you can't pretend like everything's fine. At the same time, you want to make sure uh, to also provide context and and calibrate it correctly. And you know that there is no need for panic and. It's, it's been a challenge to find the balance of doing that right. Also, obviously through new formats because you can't just sort of get everyone together um, and or maybe have, you know, sort of walk through the rooms and sort of have a chat with everyone or sort of present to individual teams or so, which is all sort of stuff that we've done in the past when we were all in the office, but you have to do it all remotely as well. So this, is, this has been a, a communications challenge. Yeah, no, undoubtedly. And thinking about... Um, Communications again. It, 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 what's the kind of best piece of advice that anyone's ever given you? That, what anything that's stuck with you that that you that's been passed on? So I, I guess sort of the, an important piece of advice would have been uh, to stay authentic. You're, it's uh, it's I think something that um, people notice uh, when you're not authentic. So I think you've you've got to stay close to who you are and then sort of work with what you've got. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good advice. Tim, th thanks so much for, for spending some time with us today. We've got one final question for you, which we've been asking all our unicorn leaders. And it's, if you were to go back in time and speak to your old self, what guidance would you give about communications and what steps would you encourage yourself to take in order for you and the business to excel in communications? Okay, so I think I would actually, I've, I've, been, I've, I've challenged myself on this before. So I think I would stick with focusing on on product and and uh, team in the early in the early years, but then probably we should have switched earlier. We should have we should have in particular, I think we should have started to contribute to the wider industry context around our expertise earlier. This has proven to be really effective for us. It's I think it's it's uh, it's been a good instrument for us to. Um, to uh, reach our audience, our target groups. And I think that, I guess this is sort of, we are having good um, success with it now. I think we, this is something we could have started five years ago. Tremendous. Uh, thank you so much for doing that today, Dr. Tim Sievers. Um, cheers for joining the podcast and uh, good luck with the uh, launch in the US, hopefully. Thank you, like Tim. thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care. So Brendan, that's uh unicorn leader number six uh, in the can um thoughts on what tim had to say today i mean it was great learning about their business and kind of the the chicken and egg point that um tim mentioned about how they kind of um built their own consumer platform to demonstrate the value of the business and then i think probably picking up one of our on the theme of communications the thing that that struck me is that kind of that um reflection tim had on the need to actually be out there engaging with the industry and contributing and then perhaps in hindsight you know they should have done that earlier but they're, they're now doing i think that's kind of maybe an important learning that um other ceos might um benefit from yeah and and one thing i picked up because bearing in mind this whole series is about european unicorns the fact that he said he's got 44 nationalities in the business i mean that is a challenge that they're not necessarily going to get if you're starting up in the states as we, as we talked about is it yeah no that's that is a huge challenge um and yeah it was interesting to just hear that how they made that decision to you know make 
English the dominant language after after three years. And um, but it sounds like um, yeah, they've they've got some great approaches in place to to manage all of that communication. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I look forward to, um, as I said, seeing their growth in the US very soon. Uh, well, that is actually it for this sixth episode in this special series that we're producing with Taito. Uh, if you want to find out more about Deposit Solutions, their website is uh, simply deposit-solutions.com. Uh, we'd also love to hear your comments on today's chat and you can share them on our Facebook page, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter feeds. And those are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of Spotify and Apple. And if you've liked what you've heard, uh, please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, We're, of course, available on all podcast apps. Just search for The C-Suite Podcast and hit subscribe. Uh, You can also subscribe to the Without Borders podcast from our partners at Taito. And all the details for that are on their website. So just head to taitopr.com, click on the podcast link in the top navbar, and you should find it there. Um, If you are a unicorn leader yourself and you'd like to be part of this series, uh, please do get in touch with us via the contact form on the website at csuitepodcast.com. Plus, of course, anyone can get in touch with the show um, via that same process to share any feedback you may have. Uh, Finally, you can also reach me via Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. (music) 